based on what the New Testament documents say, you have to conclude he's either crazy, he's a conniver, or he's the Christ. He's either a crazy man, thinks he's God, and that he's not. He's a conniver, a con man, or he is indeed the Messiah. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're nearing the end of our study in the Revelation, and today in a message entitled, The Coming Heavenly Kingdom, Pastor Brogy will dig into chapter 22, verses 13 to 15, and look at how what God formerly forbade man from eating, namely the tree of life, he'll one day remove that restriction and invite in its partaking. Would you take your Bibles, turn to the last book of the Bible, the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. Let's dig now into our passage. Two simple truths that are highlighted there in your bulletin. First, we want to think about those who are included in the heavenly kingdom. Those who are included in the heavenly kingdom. Notice now what we read here in verse 13. I am, Jesus is speaking, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, this is the third and final time in the Revelation that someone, some member of the Godhead says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. So let's review it for a moment because this is very, very important. Don't lose your place. Turn back to Revelation chapter 1 for just a moment. Go back to Revelation chapter 1, all the way back to Revelation chapter 1. Every born-again, blood-bought child of God needs to be able to defend the deity of Christ. If you're meeting someone and they show up at your door, or maybe the person is religious and not necessarily a member of a cult, But there's two big questions people need to ask and answer. Number one, is the Bible true? Is it the only book God wrote? And number two, what does it say about Jesus? Is Jesus really God in human flesh, as historically Christians have affirmed? Look in Revelation chapter 1, and look, if you will, at verse 8. Let me read it to you. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Remember, this is the vision of the glorified, exalted, ascended Messiah in heaven. I am the Alpha And the Omega says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come. Now, if you're using a red letter edition of the Bible, these words are in red and rightly so. Why? Because this is Jesus speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega. He describes himself in terms of the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Today in English, we'd say I'm the A all the way through the Z. I am the sovereign alphabet. I am the final source of all truth and put that claim back in our passage today in light of his second coming, that what he is going to say about the second coming and his right to judge is trustworthy because he is the embodiment of truth. Notice he is the one who is and who was and who is to come. Now look up just the page a little bit to verse four, and there's someone else speaking. It's God the Father. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him, speaking of God, who is and who was and who is to come. An identical description between God the Father and God the Son. Look again in verse 8. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. 
The Father and the Son are both properly designated in term the Lord God, because like Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is, he was, and he will always be, because he is the eternal, ever-present God in human flesh. And just as the Father, in verse 4, says that he is who is to come, even to the Son here in verse 8 says, he is to come. Now, that's interesting. And if you are with us in our course on pneumatos, spirit, pneumatology, the doctrine of the spirit, we looked at multiple instances where each member of the Trinity makes an identical claim. If I asked you who gives spiritual gifts, probably most of you would say the Holy Spirit, and you'd be right. But also the Son gives spiritual gifts according to Ephesians 4. And God the Father, according to Romans 12, gives spiritual gifts because you cannot separate the members of the Godhead. And oneness Pentecostalism, like T.D. Jakes, he says, well, the Father becomes the Son, the Son becomes the Spirit, the Spirit becomes the Father. And, but he denies that the members of the Godhead are co-equal and co-eternal. So who's returning someday? Well, the Father says he is. He is coming back someday, as is the Son. And we could also argue, as will the Spirit. In different ways, there will be different expressions of their return from heaven. But again, we find identical expressions describing him. Jesus is also described as the Almighty. Wow, that's interesting. Not only is the Lord God, as the Father is called the Lord God, but he's called the Almighty. And dozens of times in the Old Testament, the Father is called the Almighty. And in the New Testament, nine different times, the Father, along with the Son, is called the Almighty. And the Almighty is a term that describes someone who is all-powerful, who holds everything together in his hands. So Jesus has the same name, he has the same title, and he has many of the same functions as the Father. My wife and I recently, and she was doing a woman's conference, and I was doing a pastor's conference, and it was a large city of about a million people, and... We'd go out at night at the end of the day, and every night there would be all these Jehovah's Witnesses that are set up. And they'd rotate about every two or three hours. And, you know, they have a faulty translation called the New World Translation. Look, if you were a staunch atheist but you knew Greek, you would know it's absolutely impossible to translate the New World Translation the way they do. And yet we had some really fascinating discussions with some of these JWs, one woman in particular who is extremely open to the truth of the gospel, that Jesus was more than a man, that he is God. But listen, the terms that are used interchangeable, and there are many ways you can get there, even from their faulty New World Translation, to show that the Father makes this claim about himself, and the Son makes the identical claim about himself, show that the two are equal. Now, fast forward to Revelation 21. We're almost back at our text, Revelation chapter 21. Go all the way towards the end of the Revelation. And this is the second occurrence of the phrase, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Some of you are just sitting there like you're half asleep. You need to be taking notes because one of these days there's going to be someone in a dorm room and they're going to ask you, well, I don't believe Jesus is God. And you need to be able to defend your faith. That's your responsibility to make a defense for the hope that is within you. Look at Revelation 21. Let's pick it up in verse 5. We hear the Father speaking. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. God who cannot lie is delivering a message that you can count on because all of his promises are faithful and they are true. And notice what the father says of himself in verse six. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. The one speaking is the same person identified in verse 5, namely God the Father, and he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. The A to the Z, the beginning and the end. Nothing was before me. Nothing is beyond me. I am the one true eternal God. And notice what he says he does and promises in verse 6. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. Now, if you remember, we studied this. He's not talking about literal water, physical water to quench a thirsty mouth, but he's talking about spiritual water. But the Father is making a claim that the Son identically claims. Remember Jesus? On the last day, the great day of the feast, he stood up and cried, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and then out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But these things, John said, he spoke of the Spirit, who was not yet given because Christ had not yet been glorified. So the Father here, who's inseparable from the Son, together are offering spiritual satisfaction and the most inner recesses of your heart. And how does he do it? Without cost. The Net Bible says free of charge. The ESV renders it without payment. Why? Because it's already been bought and paid for, as this passage is going to show us this morning, with the blood of the Lord Jesus. It is free to those who will believe. And so Jesus can say, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Now look at our verse, 22 and verse 13. Jesus is speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's what the Father just said of himself in Revelation 21, verse 6. The first and the last, Isaiah 41, 4, the father says that of himself. The beginning and the end, that's what the father just said of himself in Revelation 21 and verse 6. I hope you're not missing the incredible interplay of titles and functions between the father and son, and we could also show with other scripture of the Holy Spirit as well. Now think your way through this. The Bible teaches that each member of the Godhead are co-equal and co-eternal that they are distinct and yet they are inseparable. And so most of us can quote John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or verses like Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So ask yourself this question. How is the cross a demonstration of the Father's love if the father didn't die on that cross. I remember Phil Donahue back in the 70s mocking Jerry Falwell. And he said, well, if God really loved the world, why didn't he step out of heaven and die on a cross? Why didn't he send his son? And by the way, that's the typical argument that Muslims have thrown at me when I've tried to witness to Muslims. Well, listen, if Jesus is only a man as the cults say, like Mormons and Jehovah's Witness, or as liberal theologians in our day, and we have churches in Beaufort County who deny the deity of Christ, who come under the umbrella of so-called Protestantism. If Jesus is only a man, then the cross is indeed no demonstration of the Father's love. It shows zero evidence 
that God really loved us. But if Jesus is God, equal with the Father, if the members of the Godhead are inseparable, then in God giving his Son, he was giving of himself. Now, all three titles, the Alpha, the Omega, the First, and the Last, the Beginning and the End, are used interchangeably of the Father and the Son. And they have the same roles and the same kinds of ministries. That forces a person to make a decision. Who is Jesus? Based on what the New Testament documents say, you have to conclude he's either crazy, he's a conniver, or he's the Christ. He's either a crazy man, thinks he's God, and that he's not. He's a conniver, a con man, or he is indeed the Messiah. In the words of the third century argument that one of the church fathers postulated, he's either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. He's either a deceiver, he's deranged, or he is deity. He is either a conniver, crazy, or he's Christ, but you must choose. You cannot say he's just another good man, another great teacher. You must bow down and call him Lord or reject him altogether. And so the Bible teaches that Jesus was not merely a great prophet or a teacher or a misguided martyr, but that he is God in human flesh. And that's what he's affirming here in verse 13. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning, and the end. And don't miss it. It's in the context of verse 12, his ability to come and to judge men according to his deeds, because only God can judge. The Pharisees say, who can forgive sin but God alone? And on another occasion, who can judge but God alone? Well, the one who is equal to the Father, and his name is Jesus. Now look at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Now, this is the seventh beatitude found in the Revelation. And it's the ultimate beatitude, the ultimate blessing would be for you to enter into the city and to eat from the tree of life. Now, remember, the city, heaven, is called by different names. In John 14, it's called the Father's house. Paul refers to it as the third heaven, and we spoke earlier how it is different from the first heaven and the second heaven. It's called the paradise of God. Paradise was the place in Luke 16 where an Old Testament believer could go, but paradise was emptied out at the ascension, and heaven is still called paradise. It's called the kingdom of God. It's also called the kingdom of God in Christ. So when I titled this sermon, The Coming Kingdom, you might have thought, well, is he speaking about Christ's rule on the earth or is he speaking about heaven? And of course, the term kingdom of God is also used of heaven, another designation for the place that we will go someday. It's also called the New Jerusalem. It's also called the New, the Holy City. Now let's talk about the kingdom of God for just a moment because this is important. Someone called on the Bible line last Tuesday, and they wanted to know what was meant by the kingdom of God. And it all depends on the context, because the term kingdom of God is used in different ways. Sometimes it's used, as this slide shows, just of God's sovereign rule over everything. For instance, in Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I preached a sermon once on the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. You'll meet him in heaven someday. 
After he's converted and he comes to his senses, he declares, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Likewise, in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, that God rules over all. He has authority over every single person who's put in a place of authority. So on the one hand, broadly speaking, the kingdom of God refers to his sovereign rule over the whole universe. But more narrowly speaking, sometimes the term the kingdom of God refers to God's spiritual rule in the hearts of someone, in the hearts of those people who are converted. And so the first word out of Jesus' mouth when he begins his public ministry is repent. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. When he stood before Pilate, he told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. He's speaking of the spiritual nature of the kingdom there. He told his disciples that it's necessary to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water, that's your first birth in the spirit, you will never see the inside of the kingdom. And so Luke can say that the kingdom of God is within you. It's within you because it's, there's a spiritual dimension to it. And so in John 3, 5, and again, he will repeat himself, you must be born twice to enter God's kingdom. So broadly speaking, it refers to God's sovereign rule over all. And Jesus uses it that way in Revelation 3 and in verse 21. He who overcomes, he said, and all believers will, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down right where he is today with my father on his throne. But spiritual speaking, right now there's a kingdom that is being unfolded in the hearts of believers. And so Paul will say to the church at Rome, the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He's talking about that inward reality. Someday, though, there will be a literal kingdom that will come to earth. There's Christ's literal kingdom on the earth. The choir sang the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus taught us to sing in the Lord's, or to say in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Most people have not really connected that to the way the church fathers and the way theologues for centuries have understood this, that this is the coming kingdom that someday the kingdom will literally come to the earth. We studied that in great detail in Revelation 20 and verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection over these, the second death, has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. A day is coming in the future when the kingdom will literally come to earth. That's not a New Testament concept. That is repeated dozens of times over in the Old Testament prophets. What we learn in the New Testament is not the reality of the kingdom, but the fact that it will be 1,000 years long. And that's refreshing because, listen, no matter how difficult life may come and deal you trials and heartaches, there's coming a day when God will justly rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. It doesn't matter how much they are making fun of believers today. In the end, God's people are victorious. And know, too, that the term kingdom of God is also used just to describe heaven. So there's four different usages. For instance, in Mark chapter 10 and verse 14, Jesus said, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. Why? For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. 
And sometimes people have asked, occasionally we get a call on the Bible line, they'll say, is the kingdom of God the same as the kingdom of heaven? And the answer is yes, they are the same. So in the parallel passage, Jesus says in Matthew 19, same occasion, same day, let the children alone, do not hinder them from coming to me. Why? For the kingdom of heaven. He just said in Mark's account, written to Romans, the kingdom of God, to Jews, the kingdom of heaven, belongs to such as these. So here in verse 14, he's making it crystal clear. Don't miss the context. He's coming quickly. People will be fixed in their rottenness or in their righteousness because he has the authority to judge according to their deeds. How does he have that authority? Because he is the alpha, the omega, the beginning, and the end. And on what basis will he judge people? Based on the way they are associated to the Messiah. Look at verse 14. 14 now. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Please underscore in your thinking, only those who have washed their robes by faith in the blood of Christ will have access to the tree of life. They're not saved by how good they wash their robes but they are saved by the fact that they came to the Lamb. Now, if you're using the King James, it renders it just a little bit differently. Understand, too, in the last chapter of the Bible, when the King James was done, they had a lot of verses that they didn't have in Greek. All they had was a fourth-century Latin translation, and that's why in the original preface of the King James, that they said, we have limited manuscripts, but we're finding new manuscripts all the time that elucidate what God is saying. The challenge sometimes is, is that scribal note something that somebody in modern day language put out in the margin, or was that inspired? And of course, in 1611, they came out with the 1611A version, and the process of getting it out, they found Morse manuscripts, and then they came out with the 1611B version. And then they came out in 1613 and so on. And the old King James today is the 1738 translation because a lot of words were changing so fast. But let me read the King James here. It says, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life. Now, on the one hand, you could argue those who do his commandments, the emphasis on it is on a changed life. And those who are changed from the inside out show that by their deeds, they have a right to the tree of life. Whereas the best manuscripts argue those who have washed their robes. Well, how do you wash your robes? Is it something you do? No, it is someone that you choose. And so let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so the New King James follows it correctly. They have washed their robes and made them white, Revelation 7, 14 says, in the blood of the Lamb. When you wash your robes in the Revelation, you are acknowledging your need for the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Jesus. Now today, we think about getting blood on a robe and we think we have somehow defiled it, but not in the mind of a Jew, and especially these first century readers. In Hebrews 9 and verse 22, it tells us that all things are cleansed with blood. Moses, speaking of the Passover, God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. 
And so both the Old and the New Testaments often speak of blood as a symbol of life and cleansing. Why? Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. We think of blood simply just in terms of death, and that's one aspect to it. But the term blood is also used in Scripture of life and of purity. And so in Romans 5, 9, it says, we are justified by his blood such that we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. In Ephesians 1.17, it says, we have redemption, how? Through his blood. According to Colossians 1.20, Christ has made peace, how? Through the blood of his cross. And even in the opening chapter of the Revelation, Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and released us from our sins, how? By his blood. Now, the fallen mind takes offense at the blood of Christ. They say that's the religion of the butcher shop. But it's precious to the believer because we recognize the only way we can be forgiven is through the blood of the Lamb. I meet people sometimes, I'm a diehard, dyed-in-the-wool Baptist or Methodist or Episcopalian. Look, I don't care what you are. You need to be dyed in the blood of Christ or you will never see the living God. And there's only one way to have your robe cleaned, and that's through the blood of the Lamb. Look again at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Needs to be put in the context of the revelation of how robes are washed, not to mention the rest of the Bible. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Now, sometimes I am asked the question, is this a literal tree or a figurative tree? Did this tree actually exist or is it just symbolic of something? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it did literally exist and yes, it does symbolize something. Now, unless God is using a metaphorical expression or a figure of speech where he says, well, it's like this or it's like so-and-so, then applying the rules of Greek and Hebrew grammar, you just interpret it literally. Well, some have suggested that this is not a literal tree, but it's purely figurative, but that violates the rules of basic Hebrew and Greek grammar, not to mention the immediate context, not to mention the broader context of the whole of Scripture. I mean, contextually in Genesis 2 and Revelation 22, it's referring to a literal, actual tree. Now, when was this tree mentioned first in the Revelation? Back in chapter 2 and verse 7, Jesus is addressing the church at Ephesus. And there he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So what God at one point in human history forbade man to eat after he sinned, he now invites them to eat of and promises in paradise, one of the names for heaven, that we will eat of it. To listen again to today's study from Revelation 22, verses 13 to 15, use the Search the Scriptures app for Apple and Android devices or on your computer, navigate to searchthescriptures.org and look for today's program titled The Coming Heavenly Kingdom. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV70. As we near the end of our study in the Revelation, we welcome and encourage you to listen to any of the messages in this series using the STS app 
or by visiting the Search the Scriptures website. And if we can answer any questions for you about this book of the Bible, or if you have any other Bible-related questions, visit the searchthescriptures.org website and click at the top of the page where it says, Ask Dr. Brogy a Question. Dr. Brogy hosts a radio call-in program Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, and he'll answer your questions. You can listen live or replay past broadcasts using the STS app or through the Search the Scriptures website. Tomorrow, the conclusion of the coming heavenly kingdom. Join us then as we search the scriptures.